everyone. The Bible reading tonight is from the book of Micah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. You can find it in your little news sheets, and it'll be on the screen as well. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay, her, and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be used. They will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people. Even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth, Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Safia. Those who live in Zanon will, come, will not come out. Beth Azel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief. Because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give part parting gifts to Morsheth's Gath. The town of Akzib will, will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Masha. The nobles of Israel will flee Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture for they will go from you into exile. Thanks, Sophie. And hi, everyone. I'm Nat Rosner, one of the ministers here at Carlton, and it's really lovely to be with you tonight to get us going in the book of Micah. 
Disobedience, Disaster and Deliverance. That's what we've called this series. It's a pretty intense title, isn't it? It's a shame it's not something like disciplined, delightful and deserving. That would be a little bit more cheerful. But to be honest, even though Micah is a short book, it is a really intense book. It's an emotional roller coaster. Often uh, Micah seems to move from the depths of despair to the heights of hope just within a verse or two. It's not just an emotional roller coaster. It's a book that seems really far from us in quite a few ways. Even in that reading in chapter one, uh, those kings might be kings that you're not super familiar with Ahaz, Jotham, Hezekiah. Some of the place names were also really unfamiliar Beth Ophra, Beth Ezel, Shafir, Zainan, uh, not at all familiar. If you know anything about the book of Micah, it's probably Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You'll find this verse on memes and on wallpaper, on mugs and on tea towels. It's a great verse to know. But there's much more that Micah has to offer us as well as this verse. To help us with some of these challenges as we get into Micah today, we're going to use an approach to reading the Bible that has three stages in it. We're going to mind the gap, we're going to smell the roses and we're going to join the dots. That might sound a little bit odd. I have to um, credit my husband with this. This is his kind of creative way of reading the Bible and I think we'll find it helpful. Minding the gap helps us to be aware of the historical distance between us and the first hearers of this message. It helps us to read the Bible well as history. Smelling the Roses is about appreciating deeply what we read in this book of Micah. It helps us to read Micah well as literature. And joining the dots makes sure that we apply what we hear to our own lives today. It helps us to read Micah well as theology. So firstly, let's mind the gap uh, between our day and Micah's day as we look at the who, when, where and what of the book of Micah. I don't know if any of you are Star Wars fans. I'm a bit of a Star Wars tragic. Uh, If you've watched a Star Wars movie, you'll know at the beginning of the movie you get the Star Wars opening crawl on the screen. So the music plays, uh, the words start scrolling up, your spine tingles, you're ready to be there with the rebel forces fighting against the Empire. Yeah, maybe, (laughs) some of you. But the opening crawl orients us to where we are in the Star Wars epic. It reminds us of who is who, of what's happening and of where we are in that big story. Micah chapter 1 verse 1 is just like that. It orients us to where we are at Micah's moment in the great epic story of God's people Israel. It helps us to mind the gap. So here's the Micah opening crawl. I don't have any stirring music to go with this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. 
So the who of the book of Micah is the man Micah. His hometown was Moresheth. This was a little town about 40 kilometres southwest of Jerusalem. This was a bit optimistic to put up on the screen, but the pink bit is the northern kingdom of Israel. The orange bit is the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's a little... Um, yellow box out in the Mediterranean Sea which is pointing to Moresheth which was Micah's hometown. The when and where of Micah is during the reign of those kings Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah and it's a vision concerning both Israel and Judah. Samaria and Jerusalem were the capitals of those two nations respectively. If Star Wars is epic, the story of God's people Israel is mega epic and it's history, not fiction. This mega epic story of God's people began with creation, with Adam and Eve in the garden. Other defining moments were God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and a couple of other chapters there. The Exodus when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt under Moses' leadership. That was a high, but it was followed by a low point really quickly. Uh, The people wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure to obey and trust the Lord. Moses died on the edge of the land that God had promised to bring his people into. So it was Joshua who led them into the land instead. He encouraged them to be strong, to be very courageous, to obey all of the law that Moses had given them. Once they were in the land, their story continued with conquest. They were led by judges. Then they had kings who led them, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. That was another high point in the history of Israel. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam was king of Israel, the northern tribes rejected him as king. So the kingdom of Israel split. Uh, This is another optimistic diagram for you. Uh, the, The line on the left there represents the combined kingdom and the two separate lines represent the split, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That split happened in 930 BC when Solomon's son Rehoboam was king. Micah lived a long time after that, about 200 years later. Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah reigned from kind of 740 BC to 687 BC. So Micah was probably prophesying around the end of the 8th century, 735 to 700 BC. Uh, Micah and Isaiah are represented right down the bottom of that diagram, on the right. So Micah was prophesying just before the northern kingdom kind of ended uh, and then uh, as the southern kingdom continued. It was a really tough time politically when Micah was prophesying. Assyria was the global superpower. They invaded Israel in 734 BC and then again in 722. That second invasion was the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's when that top line finishes. Most of the people were taken captive. Assyria came back again in 701 BC, this time attacking Judah and Jerusalem under King Hezekiah. Judah barely survived at that time and we'll see a reference to that later in the book of Micah. 
the summary is that Micah served God in fearful times. That's the who, the when and the where. The what that Micah brought into those fearful times was the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Micah in a vision that he saw. We read that at the beginning of the book. You might want to follow along in the, the passage on your news sheet. The vision is addressed to all the peoples, to all who live in the earth. But it's about God's people, about Israel and Judah and it's addressed to them as well. It's a message from the sovereign Lord we see there, from the Lord in his holy temple. The power and perfection of the Lord underlie this vision. This powerful and perfect Lord is bearing witness against the people. He's testifying against his own people. That is really not good news. We'll see that there are three sections in the book of Micah. Chapters 1 and 2 that we'll look at today. Uh, Chapters 3 to 5 is the next section and then chapters 6 and 7 is the final section. These can be viewed as three lawsuits that God is bringing against his own people. Three cycles of disaster in response to their disobedience. But thankfully it's not all disobedience and disaster. Hope is found at the end of each of these three cycles in the book of Micah. So tonight we'll see a full cycle, uh, disobedience, disaster as well as hope in chapters 1 to 2. Then each week of the series following this we'll dig down into just half of the cycle each week. So let's lean in now to Micah 1 and 2 to help us smell the roses. We're going to slow down, look at some of the details in the text and really feel this message. And as we do that, we'll explore our first themes. The first of those is disobedience. When our son was in preschool, I read a book called 1, 2, 3 Magic. It was a parenting book. I was a bit suspicious of the title. It kind of sounded like it it promised way more than it could deliver. But a friend of mine who was a paediatrician recommended it and I kind of figured if anyone should know a good parenting book, she should. It was actually a really helpful book. Basically, it helps parents set up a discipline strategy. And it's a strategy where the child knows ahead of time what process will happen if they disobey their parents. And the child also knows ahead of time what consequence will follow when they disobey. Micah's vision makes it really clear in chapters 1 and 2 what Israel's disobedience has been and what consequences will follow. Have a look again at verse 5. All this is because of Jacob's transgression because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Both kingdoms are in the firing line here. The whole covenant people of God is guilty. The two capital cities are singled out, Jerusalem and Samaria. They're the centre of corruption, it seems, maybe pointing to the leaders in particular. But it's not just the leaders, it also includes the people in general. You can read about this period of Israel and Judah's history in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. 
And if you do that, you'll see what Micah is talking about. Repeatedly, there's a refrain used of the kings of Israel there. Uh, So-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The kings of Judah were a little bit more mixed. Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, Hezekiah even more so. But Ahaz was more like the kings of Israel, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. In more detail, what we see in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that God's people really struggled to worship God with pure hearts. Sometimes they worshipped God, but they did it in the ways that they wanted to do. They didn't follow God's uh, decrees about how to worship him. Sometimes they didn't even worship God. They turned aside and worshipped other gods. Their sin is idolatry and Micah calls it out here. He calls out their idols, he calls out their temple gifts, he calls out their images in verse 7. He describes it as an incurable plague in verse 9. Perhaps starting in the northern kingdom, it spread to Judah and Jerusalem, to Micah's own people. At this point, Micah seems very foreign to us, doesn't it? Idolatry isn't our problem, right? Maybe we shouldn't be so hasty in reaching that conclusion. Romans chapter 1 diagnoses all of humanity as having worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So if we're not tempted to the same kind of idolatry that Israel and Judah were, perhaps we do sometimes give our hearts to other idols. Perhaps we do seek security and hope in other places rather than God. Tim Keller is a Christian leader and writer and he's done some work thinking about idols. He identifies a number of idols that he suggests tempt us away from worshipping God with all of our hearts. Four of the most basic idols he identifies are power, approval, comfort and control. And he says those underlie some more concrete idols, things like relationships, work or study, success, money. They're all good things in and of themselves, but not when they become the ultimate thing that we look to and hope for in our lives rather than God himself being our ultimate love. I found it really challenging to reflect on this, to reflect and meditate on what might be some of the idols that draw me away from wholehearted worship of God might be fruitful for you to reflect on that as well. Idolatry is a huge problem for Israel and Judah, but it's not just idolatry. If we read on in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 on the screen, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes and rob them of their inheritance. And then in verse 8, 
Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. What Mike is describing here isn't kind of incidental disobedience to God. God's people are planning and plotting evil deliberately. They defraud, they rob, they see and they take fields, houses, inheritances, robes. They leave their victims without livelihoods, without homes. They leave people unable to experience the blessing that God had intended for them in the land. They're greedy, they're corrupt, they oppress other people. Perhaps you see something of our world in that description too. Perhaps even sometimes the church. Perhaps even sometimes ourselves. What we see here is that God calls us to obedience to him vertically and horizontally. That's the shape of the commands that God gave his people in the Exodus. Worship God. Love others. Israel has failed in both of those. And that's not all either. Chapter 2, verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. The descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to those who are, whose ways are upright? If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Micah has a real go at them here. It's not just the leaders and the people of God who are disobedient, the prophets are too. Other prophets are saying to Micah, don't talk about this, don't make your vision known. The people themselves query Micah's message. They ask, does the Lord become impatient? They imply but that, by that question that because they know God will be patient because he's slow to anger, they think he'll never act. Does he do such things, they ask. They cast doubt on whether the Lord would ever come in judgment on his people. Micah calls them all out. The words of the Lord do good to those who are upright, he says. But these people would rather hear from a prosperity prophet preaching plenty of wine and beer. They love to hear the covenant promises, but not its prescriptions. They like the covenant comforts, but not its commandments. Maybe we're sometimes like that too. Maybe sometimes we like to hear about gospel salvation, but not so much about gospel sacrifice. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? God's people are idolatrous, they're greedy, they're corrupt, they oppress the vulnerable, their ears are deliberately deaf to the, mess, to the words of the Lord. We don't live under the Old Testament law like Israel and Judah did. But God's call on us has that same shape, vertical and horizontal. When Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment in the law? This is what he answered in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. The vertical, love the Lord your God. The horizontal, love your neighbour as yourself. Perhaps we fail in many of the same ways that Israel did, even if the details look different. God's assessment of Israel is really bleak. His assessment of us and all humanity is bleak too. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he says, gratifying the cravings of your flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The consequence that Micah warns of for Israel is also bleak. In, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 1, we heard Micah declares, disaster has come from the Lord. And again in chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says it, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. We really feel this disaster in Micah's opening words in chapter 1. Verse 3, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. It's a terrible picture of destruction. The world seems to fall apart as the Lord comes. It melts. It splits. The picture becomes more direct in verse 6. I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Samaria herself will be destroyed. Her religion will be eradicated. Remember Assyria, that great global superpower I mentioned. They invaded Israel in 734 BC, again in 722. Assyria was God's instrument of judgment. That was the end of the northern kingdom and at least the beginning of the end of the city of Samaria itself. The Lord did indeed make Samaria a heap of rubble. Her idols were broken, her images were destroyed, her people were either captured or killed. The Lord brought disaster on his people from which they could not save themselves. It wasn't just the destruction that was the disaster. That was terrible, but the significance of it was even worse. Micah is a one, two, three magic moment. It's the word of the Lord to his people about the consequences that their actions will bring. But the real one, two, three magic moment happened hundreds of years earlier on the edge of the promised land. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses set before his people blessings if they obeyed the Lord in the land and warned them of curses if they disobeyed the Lord in the land. The message on the edge of the land was, if you obey, then you will stay. Micah flags now that the moment of truth has come. The people haven't obeyed the Lord, so they won't stay in the land that he promised. 
just like Israel. We have failed to obey the Lord with all of our hearts. So we also face a disaster from which we can't save ourselves. Not the disaster of losing a nation, not the disaster of going into captivity, but the disaster of facing God's wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 again, verse 3. We were by nature objects, uh, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It might sound overly harsh, but the truth is that our failures to love God with all of our hearts, our failures to love others wholeheartedly, are more serious than we realise. Micah's response to Israel's disaster was to weep. Verse 8 in chapter 1, Because of this I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. Micah wept over the plague of sin. He wept over the terrible consequences for Samaria. And then he pivots and weeps too for Judah and Jerusalem. In verse 9 he says, This plague has spread to Judah. It has reached to the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. The next section of chapter 1 is a little bit tricky to translate and to understand. This is where Micah mentioned all of those names of those towns, towns that were in the same area as Micah's hometown. There's a lot of wordplay happening in the section, so it's hard to translate it from the Hebrew of the original into English. But the word play kind of emphasises how appropriate God's judgement was. In a Victorian context, Micah might have said, Port Ferry will be the pits, Halls Gap a hovel, Torquay will be toppled. It's a heartbroken lament and he calls others to lament with him. In verse 16 he says, Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Jerusalem and Judah weren't destroyed by the Assyrians when the northern kingdom was. But under King Ahaz, they were pummeled from every side by Syria, by Israel, by Edom, by Philistia. Assyria also attacked them again in 701 BC. Judah survived that time at least. But disaster came from the Lord even to the very gate of Jerusalem. We live in a completely different time. We live in a completely different place. We're not Israel or Judah. But sin is still woven into the fabric of our world. Sin is part of our church Sin is part of each one of us. Sin means that if justice is to be done, we will face God's wrath. Do we weep as Micah wept? Do we weep as Jesus wept over Jerusalem and her failure to recognise him? In the face of a disaster like this, is there any hope for Israel and Judah? Is there any hope for us? Micah 1 and 2 follows this 
trajectory that each of the cycles in Micah follow. Disobedience, disaster, but then finally, thankfully, deliverance. On the other side of judgment, Micah saw hope. Hope that can come only on the other side of judgment because of the justice of God. When I think back to 2020 and 2021, I think hope is something we were all grasping for at different points. I remember the first long lockdown in Melbourne and it felt like uh, there was hope after a little while. Case numbers started going down. It felt like freedom would come. It was a bit harder than that in 2021. Cases didn't really seem to go down even when we had lockdowns. Hope seemed really uncertain, short-lived, even futile it felt to have hope. What kind of hope does God offer his people? The hope Micah declares is very different to the hope of this world. It wasn't a vain hope but a sure hope, not a temporary hope but a permanent and final hope. Have a look at verse 12 up on the screen. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. A sure hope. But it was also a distant hope, a hope of regathering that Micah's holding out before them even before the people had been dispersed. It was also a substantial hope. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture, The place will throng with people, a substantial hope. It was a hope that anticipated a gathering but also a hope of liberation. Verse 13, the one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. And finally, it's a personal hope brought by their Lord and King. The King will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. When was this hope fulfilled? Maybe you can hear the echo of some of Micah's words in Jesus' words in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This hope that Micah holds out was fulfilled in Jesus, the shepherd king. And it's still being fulfilled. One writer says this about this part of Micah. The fulfilment of this prophecy commenced with the gathering together of Israel to its God and king by the preaching of the gospel and will be completed at some future time when the Lord shall redeem Israel, which is now pining in dispersion out of the fetters of its unbelief and life of sin. Our hope lies in Jesus, the Good Shepherd. I want to re- really briefly wrap this up by joining the dots. We actually have done lots of joining the dots as we've worked our way through Micah 1 and 2, but let me just draw it together now. It's really clear that Micah doesn't sugarcoat our predicament. We all disobey God. Micah also doesn't pull any punches. Disobedience leads to disaster. We, as well as Israel and Judah, face God's judgment. But we can thank God for the really good news that finally God offers 
deliverance. God brings deliverance. Let me read a couple of verses from Ephesians 2 again. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Echoing the words of Micah 2 verses 12 and 13, God has gathered all those who trust in Jesus, the good shepherd, into his flock. There is already a great throng of Christians all around the world who worship Jesus. Jesus has gone before us. He has broken away through death into life. Spiritually, we are raised and seated now with Jesus, waiting to experience our resurrection in all its fullness when Jesus returns. Let's finish now by praying and thanking God for that deliverance in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a God who keeps your promises made to Abraham so long ago. God, we weep over our disobedience. We recognise the wrath that we sit under, the judgement that we face because of it, because you are a holy God. But we thank you with all our hearts that you offer us deliverance, that you offer us hope and life and safety with you in Jesus the Shepherd King. And we thank you in his name. Amen.